1: It's the Autosport Podcast We look back at Dan Tictum's Macau Grand Prix victory and explain how Sebastien Augier clinched the world rally crown Tictum took an utterly dominant victory in the Macau Grand Prix, his second consecutive win in the event. But the 2018 race was overshadowed by a horrendous high-speed accident suffered by Sophia Flerch that also injured two photographers, a marshal, and led to the other driver involved, Joe Saboy also being taken to hospital. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and we'll be looking back at the Macau Grand Prix, as well as the FIA World Touring Car Cup title decider and the GT World Cup race that runs on the same bill. And later on, we'll also head down to Australia to hear about how Sébastien Augier clinched his sixth World Rally Championship crown. But first, it's off to Macau, where we're joined by Autosport's Formula 3 correspondent Marcus Simmons. Uh, Marcus, let's start off with the bad, which was the accident suffered by Sophia Flerch after a safety car restart. Uh, Launched off, shows boys' car at Lisboa, going through the fence into a photographer's tower. Five people taken to hospital, uh, the drivers involved, two photographers and a marshal. So what's the latest on their condition?
3: Um, Well, the latest is that um, Sophia Flerch has suffered from a spinal fracture. Um, but all her vital signs are stable, which is, uh, which is extremely good news. Obviously, it's not good news that she's got a spinal fracture. But I think we should, we should be thankful that it's uh, no more serious than that. And um, Shosa Boy, the, the driver that she hit in the middle of the corner, um, has, um, has a lumbar, lumbar pain. Um, but that's, yeah, he's, he's complaining of backache, but he's, he's probably going to be fine. Um, one of the photographers uh, has been diagnosed with a liver laceration and he's being observed in hospital, and um, the, the other photographer injured suffered concussion, and the marshal had a laceration of his face, abrasion of his upper abdomen wall, and a fractured jaw. Um, so all all nasty injuries, but I think, bearing in mind um, what happened and what um, some of you uh, listening to this would have seen, we can be pretty thankful that it wasn't any more serious than that.
1: Well, can you talk through what we actually know about the accident? We saw, obviously, severe was arrived backwards, kind of coming towards the apex of Lisboa when they was launched off the car through the fence into the tower. I mean, it was incredibly high speed. Um don't know quite how quick, but certainly the car hadn't lost much of its speed from, uh, from its kind of terminal velocity on the straight.
3: No, exactly. And uh, there is a speed trap down towards Lisboa, just before the braking area. She recorded 276.2 kilometres an hour going through there. Um, I'm not sure that uh, exactly... Uh, where the incident started in in relation to the speed trap, but it's going to be around that figure that the accident started. So, so what we know happened, and this is from talking to some people in the pit lane and, and piecing things together, is that um, yeah, it, the race had just gone green after a restart um, because there'd been an accident on the first lap, or a couple of, actually three accidents on the first lap, um, typical Macau. And um, uh, the drivers were just um coming out of the Mandarin kink which is the second of the flat-out kinks down towards Lisboa. And um, some of them saw um, yellow uh, warning lights, um, Marshall's warning lights. Um, so obviously they thought there was an incident and um, some of them started braking a little bit earlier than they than they would do. Um, I was talking to Guan Yu Zhu, who was uh, the driver right behind Sophia Flesh, and um, he told me that um, Jay and Daravala, who was just in front of her, um, lifted off probably because of the yellow lights and she was so close to him that she just didn't have time to react and um, went into the went into his uh, right rear wheel uh, that damaged her car and uh, and so she had um, she had suspension damage to her car so she wasn't able to stop anymore um, still traveling at really high speed down towards Lisboa um, she went across the curb on the uh, on the inside of the corner, <clears throat> that launched her into uh, Shosa Boy, who was just minding his minding his own business, um, turning through the corner, and uh, and that acted as a ramp, um, which put her over the barrier and uh, through the catch fencing and into the marshals and photographers' area.
1: Well, that was the uh, the, the really alarming bit of, of the impact, wasn't it? That the car went backwards through the fence and then seemed to rotate and sort of hit the top of the car, hit the the, the leading edge of that photographer's tower which was uh pretty alarming which is why even though you know a spinal injury is is not a small thing considering the size of that of that accident the speed and the impact you, you you kind of say that's that's almost a lucky escape considering
3: it is really and uh you know i know i know we we always tend to do this when there was when there are serious accidents but it's worth stressing it um you know we have to really uh give a massive um Thumbs up to Dilara, who um, who built the F3 cars. And don't forget, um, the current generation of F3 car is a 2012 generation car. Uh, There was a safety update kit introduced for 2017. It's just incredible, really, um, that uh, a car that's been around for a while is um, able to protect a driver so well in an incident like that.
1: No, very, very much so. And in terms of the size of the accident, I can't remember one at Macau, with that that kind of speed involved we have seen cars launched before but at much more sensible speeds that that seems to be completely out of the ordinary in terms of of what we've seen at that track
3: yeah it was a very unusual situation and uh what you what you could casually describe as a freak accident you know that all the all the serious accidents do, do tend to be freak sets of circumstances don't they um but yeah yeah we've never seen anything like that happen at Macau before um normally normally at lisboa it's uh, a couple of people coming together and the track getting blocked isn't it
1: <laughs> but um but this yeah this one was um was yeah just something that we've not seen before well certainly the positive thing is in relative terms the injuries are not as serious as they could have been un- unpleasant as they are uh I suggest everyone check autosport.com when they listen to this there'll be more updates uh in term- when medical information gets released there well, well let's move on to, to the race, a slightly more positive topic. Dan Tickton's victory. Uh, he took pole, won the qualifying race, won the main race, he never looked seriously threatened. This this does stand as one of the most dominant Macau wins we've, we've seen, probably.
3: Yeah, it, and um, what a contrast to last year, because um, last year he um, led about 300 metres of the race, I think, <laughs> up to the chequered flag. And, um, and this year, he was fastest in both qualifying sessions, and um, he led every lap of the of the Grand Prix, and he led um, all but a couple of the laps of the qualification race yesterday. So, it was um, yeah, it was a fantastic drive. He's been on it all weekend. Um, I thought that Joel Eriksson, who um, obviously returned to Formula Three after a season in the DCM. I thought that um, from the start of free practice, he was looking brilliant. And I've got, yeah, I, I do admit when I'm wrong, but I did tip him to win it um, right from the beginning because uh, cause I thought he looked really, really good. Um, but it it never quite came together in qualifying for him because he was um, yeah, bad luck with um, positioning on the track when yellow flags and red flags came out. And then obviously he was involved in that shunt at the end of qualifying. And uh, But then when he got up to second place... In the qualification race, I thought, well, well, there we are. It's um, going to be a straight fight between those two, and you know, it's still maybe uh, a gut feeling that um, Ericsson might do it. But I mean, Dan was just really, really good um, this afternoon, and um, his um, yeah. I think the key to his wins, and um, Ericsson did ad- admit this, is that. Um, he was just absolutely amazing on the restarts and nailing it through um, through the last two corners on the circuit, Fisherman's Bend and R Bend, so that he would come on to the start finish straight um, with pretty much a one second advantage over Ericsson. And um, you know, it's such a long, long way down to Lisboa that that's what you've got to do. And, and Ericsson admitted that he you know, was just lacking a bit at those restarts and, and letting Dan. Get away from him, and um, and and that was what was important in the end.
1: Probably the the two closest moments. The the actual start from the grid. Obviously, Eric's inevitably got the run, and he was on the outside through the mandarin, in the, the right hand kink, wasn't he? But lost lost a tiny bit of momentum through being on the outside. Naturally, rather than being able to pass or attack him. he was passed by Sessa Finestra, and then the final restart. Even though, as you said. Uh, Dan Tickton was a very long way away at, uh, when the the green flags flew Ericsson sort of started to get close where he thought oh, he might be able to do something at Lisboa, those seem to be the two moments where where Tickton had the most to worry about and even then it was pretty well under control because if you start on pole at, at Macau you half expect to be passed, particularly when there's multiple restarts.
3: Yeah, exactly That's been happen- that's happened so many times in the past and we've seen people robbed of rightful wins at Macau by late safety cars and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you talked about the start of the race, and um, Sasha Fenestra, he was he was actually going for the lead down to Lisboa and got really close to the barrier on the inside, and uh, you know, having having towed both Tixom and Eriksson, um, but um, yeah, I think um, so. The first time there, there was a previous time when Ericsson tried to get past um, Finestra, um in the race today, and uh, there was a, there was a yellow. There was a yellow flag down at bow He had the move done. You know, he was down. He was down the inside, carrying the momentum, um, but um, he he had to then back out of it because of the yellow flag. Um, so that cost him a bit of time, and uh, that's that's important in Macau because um, when when races. When races go on for longer, obviously uh, yeah, more mistakes can creep in, and and, and tyres can maybe maybe go off a little bit. So um, it wasn't until the next restart that he got Finestra, Um and that was actually a really good move because he was coming from a lot further back than his previous attempts, and he just about squeezed down the inside on the brakes. So so really, um, the he he just I just I don't think he gave himself enough time, and that was also combined with um, not really being as sharp as Tickton on the restarts. And a great performance by Tickton.
1: I guess that's the impressive thing with Tickton, wasn't it? It's the the fact that he, I forget how many restarts they were, but there were certainly, were there four, including the original start? Were there four times when he'd have been vulnerable to that? I think there was, were there three restarts in the in the races.
3: There was four, including the original start, exactly, yeah. And um, the, you know, he, he got it right every time. And, and also what's impressive about this is that He's come off the back of an end to the championship season, the Formula Three European Championship season, where he was looking quite shaky over the last couple of race weekends and um, wasn't wasn't qualifying well at all. Um, he he raced very well in the uh, final weekend at Hockenheim, but was just leaving himself too much to do. And uh, and this weekend, he's, it, it well, there's been a month since the end of the season at Hockenheim, and and he's he really. Looks like a different driver to to what he was uh, at the end of that at the end of that campaign in in the European Championship.
1: Well, you know from well the podcast, the preview podcast we did, which had Dan Tixom on it, that he was very very confident about how strong he is around Macau. He was confident about how strong the motor park team was as well, and it, he always pointed to himself and Joel Eriksson as probably the two leading contenders so so what was the secret to to the pace they both had and, and ticked them in particular is it just a combination of a team that has it very hooked up plus a pair of drivers ticked them in particular who really are confident and they know how to deliver the pace when it matters at Macau
3: yeah I think um yeah you've got to give motor park lots of credit for it because um remember last year as well they were really really good at, at Macau and um that three of their drivers um accounted for every lap led in last year's Macau Grand Prix. At the beginning of the race, it was Ericsson. Uh, for, the, for the bulk of it, it was Sergio Seccomara. And then uh, as, uh, as they came out of the last corner and went across the finish line, it was Dan Tictum. So um, I mentioned earlier the update kit on the Dallara in a safety context, but also there were um, a few aero uh, changes made to the car. And uh, so this is, this is the second Macau we've had since then and, and motor park have had the edge at Both of them, and drivers from Carlin and premer, who were the main opposition uh, were just saying that they didn't have the straight line speed that that the motor park cars had so so they've obviously found something uh which enables them to run at a quick speed on the straight but also keep that um that grip that they need around the mountain section and uh, yeah they' they are really they have probably been an underrated team over the years um but um, yeah, they've obviously done an incredibly good job at Macau, and um, they've never quite won the European Championship, although they've come close the last couple of years, and um, 2017 with with Ericsson and then this year with Tictum. um And and also, it goes to show um, yeah, what a disgrace it is that they haven't been chosen for the for the new FIA F3 Championship in 2019. It's just just dreadful.
1: Yeah, Dan Tickson wasn't afraid of mentioning that on the podium as well, uh, to uh, to stick the boot in a bit. But uh, lastly on Tickson, he's Red Bull-backed. So we know Red Bull do reckon he's got he's got a bit about him, and so he is seen as an F1 prospect. We know he's not quite got the number of super licence points needed to to race an F1 yet, although he's pretty close. As he said on the podcast, Red Bull C Formula 2 is, is too expensive. So what what's going to happen to him next year, and does this Macau victory make any difference, or was it always... Is, is, is his destiny already set?
3: Well, as we're as we're talking now, it, it it doesn't seem to make any difference to his plans for next year, which are almost certainly going to be Super Formula in Japan. Um, and actually, there is going to be some some interesting news about various European people heading over to that uh, championship uh, for next season and uh, for the Suzuka test in a couple of weeks' time, which. Uh, which I'm 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 going to write tomorrow so I don't want to give too much away it'll be on autosport.com at some point um but uh, but yeah um I don't think I'm letting any cats out of any bags by saying that, uh, that that's what uh, dan tickets doing next year because uh, that's been quite uh reasonably well known for a while and uh that's that's going to be great for him because obviously um it worked for Stoffel Vandoorne in 2016 and Pierre Gasly last year and um, and I think uh, yeah, spending uh, a, a season out there um, working in a completely different culture is is a brilliant way for for drivers to mature.
1: Well, both those drivers you mentioned, uh, Vandoorne and Gasly, benefited tremendously from that, and it's becoming a it's coming kind of back into fashion, isn't it? As a as a destination for drivers looking to to get to Formula One. So that's uh, that's positive. A competitive championship, very 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 fast cars we've talked about the the top 3 the tamerix and fenestra uh, i was about to say ralph schumacher of course mick schumacher the european f3 champion he's both the son of and the nephew of a former macau winner as everyone kept reminding him over the weekend he came home 5th but was ne- never seemed to be quite in the in the fight for victory he was thereabouts but never quite there
3: so he was putting it together in free practice Um well free practice one that was a that was a bit of an outlier really because he got him um, Callum Eilat's a lovely chap and he gave him an enormous toe so uh, <laughs> so to, to beat his own time to top that session uh, but in free practice two he genuinely was quickest he um, he, he he was the, um, set the fastest time in that session Um just didn't come together in qualifying for him um, and <clears throat> actually the second session, uh, qualifying session on Friday, which was the one where most of the field set their quickest times, um, that uh, a mistake by by Schumacher actually hampered nearly the entire pramer team, um, because he um, he he brushed the wall coming out of Moorish, which is the second of the very narrow right-handers um, towards the end of the mountain section, and uh, he he thought that uh, the car yeah, when quite often people do brush the wall at Moorish, and we've seen people do that and carry on with no ill effect. So, so that's what he decided to do: is try and complete the lap. He got to the next corner, which is the left hander at Donna Maria, and then almost shunted it. And uh, the reason why he did that was because he had a puncture. So at that point, he then um, decided to come back to the pits. But um, unfortunately for Premer, uh Ralph Aaron Robert Schwartzman and Guan Yu Zhu his three teammates who were still on the track uh, were right behind him and all of them got delayed so so that was that was you said um, Mick Schumacher didn't quite get it together but uh, but it also didn't happen for the entire team in qualifying uh, as a as a result of that incident that small mistake and but but still the team thought they had the pace and uh, you know you look at the sector times and, and they were they were in the mix so um, but uh, but the qualification race on Saturday that's where it all started to slip away slightly because um, the uh, they were lacking speed in sector one which is just completely flat out from the start finish line down towards the braking area for Lisboa and uh, they just couldn't make the progress they wanted to from their from their grid positions and that you, you everyone would have predicted they would have been able to so um so yeah it was a disaster and, and Guan Yuzhi was the best driver of the team this weekend um and he was running 5th in that race and, and uh until he dropped it on the mountain on the last lap when he uh, he basically backed off to uh well not not backed off completely but he was um you know taking it taking it a little bit uh, more cautiously on the last lap just to get home to the finish and um it was you yeah, know one of those one of those deals where you lose a bit of concentration and those barriers are a bit close that, that was a big accident, actually. He was—he um, didn't—he didn't think it was massively, massively big when he uh, when he had it, but when he saw
1: the, saw the footage afterwards, he realised um, how big it was. Yeah, it's quite difficult to have a small accident in uh, certain parts of, of that circuit. I suppose the other driver we should mention is—is is, uh, well, actually, two of t- the other returnees. Jake Hughes finished fourth, which is good on his return to F three, and Callum also—he's always been quick in Macau didn't have the the best of races that the start kind of undid him uh, in the, in in the final but they both performed performed strongly I mean I in particular will he be disappointed with with ending up where was he eighth in the end yeah
3: he was quite um not not so much disappointed but quite philosophical about it really he he knows he went to Macau and did his best um he he loved driving the car again and um he had a really really strong weekend it just went wrong in the um, in the final on Sunday really Um, and that was he didn't make a great start um, but he was looking like he was possibly going to slipstream his way back up into um, his original starting position which was third but then he um, kind of found himself on the wrong side of the road going into Lisboa and he lost a couple of places there Um, he then fell into the Um, the clutches of others at the uh, restart after the red flag um, and uh, lost another couple of places and and he said he just didn't he just didn't have the pace um which was obviously a little bit disappointing especially as um fenestra was up there in third place in the in the um in the other carling car that was towards the front of the field so um there was a little bit of contact with yuri vips at one point as well who's another driver we should mention i think but um uh that's um yeah, and he got eventually passed by Vips on the last lap and, and finished a disappointing eighth. But um going on to Jake Hughes, uh yeah, he's he was a much lower profile import to Formula three for Macau and like like Callum, he spent the season in GP three, but he's had a pretty um disappointing year and uh he was um it's not all down to the driver I understand um, there's, there's been a, a few problems that have, um, that have hit him this season and um, Tech hadn't been to Macau either for a couple of years they, they missed it last year but, but the, the car seemed good right from the beginning and um, he was riding the mix and looking um, watching him out at some of the corners on the mountain he was he was really really good actually the um, second day uh, the first day he was usual Jake Hughes uh, which is in so smooth you almost don't even notice him going past. And um on the second day he was smooth but looking really, really quick as well. And uh some of his sector times on the mountain were, were superb, second to none. So um so he had a really, really strong weekend and uh in the races didn't quite come together. Um but the other um the other driver, Yuri Vips I thought had a had a really outstanding uh, Macau debut and um, in the motor park team alongside dan dan and, and Yael Eriksson among others and he was he was really really um hammered by the yellow flags and red flags in the second qualifying session and and I did a calculation based on sector times up to that point based on what he'd done in previous sessions in the last sector where he hit the yellow flags and um He should have actually been second or third on the grid, not 14th. Um, But um, he got himself up to seventh in the qualification race on Saturday. Uh, And then, yeah, he he just lost out in the slipstream in the final and it never came together for him. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't quite got the lowdown from everybody I wanted to after the final but because they all have to go to the traditional Macau Grand Prix prize-giving, which is always at a fixed time. And because of um, Sophia Flerch's accident um everything ran really late and uh so by the time uh, you get down to the paddock after the press conference most most of them have gone um so hopefully by the time uh, autosport magazine comes out on thursday i will have got to the bottom of a couple of things but um but yeah vips was vips was a
1: really really good all weekend um, but it just didn't come together today no, certainly. Well, I've no doubt you'll get to the bottom of any outstanding questions by the time the uh, the report has to go to press. So I suggest everyone pick up a copy of Autosport on Thursday to uh, to find out the missing pieces.
3: Most likely it will be in the bar, the Macau tradition.
1: <laughs> yeah, as it should be, as it should be. Uh, well, thanks very much, Marcus Simmons, for, for your time. I'll leave you to get back to, uh, well, doing your work and, and sitting in the bar uh, and uh, enjoy your, well, I say enjoy, enjoy your evening in Macau as far as you can with the amount of uh, work you've got to get through.
3: Yes, well, um, uh, the great thing about Macau is that the time difference is in your favour, so you uh, you can go and um, do, a, do a nice bit of uh, socialising on the Sunday evening and then get down to work for autosport on the
1: Monday. Exactly, have a little bit of uh, well-deserved relaxation after a, after a busy week. Thanks very much, Marcus Simmons. Well, the Grand Prix itself is the main focus of the weekend, but there several other very significant races that take place during the events, and I'm now joined by Jack Cousins in Macau to talk us through those. FIA World Touring Car Cup races were a title showdown between two all-time tin-top greats, 56-year-old Gabriele Tarquini and 49-year-old Ivan Muller. Now, Tarquini was the clear favourite coming in, and he did close out the title, but it was seriously close, wasn't it?
4: It's remarkable how close it was in the end, Ed. He came into the event with a 39-point cushion over, over Muller, um, 87 on offer because World Touring Cars employs three different point systems. You get points for qualifying as well. So a fair margin. Um, we came in with with seven title contenders, but realistically, it was it was just those two. It's very difficult to understand how Tarquini ended up letting it get so close. Really, in the end,
1: because it all, it all seemed to start off fairly straightforward. The first race, he bagged decent points, so he was he was on track at that point. I guess it was it was race two where it started to get difficult.
4: It is, and and uh, so qualifying, they would usually have the. Uh, session for the first race on um, the Saturday morning uh, and then have a race and then have a second qualifying on Sunday morning before two races. Now, four-day event in Macau, plenty of other things to cram into the schedule meant that uh, this was, you know, it didn't follow that format. The pressure was on Tarquini a bit for the races because he'd qualified 14th for races two and three before he'd even contested the first race. So, yeah, as as you say, he came out all right of that one. Uh, Muller made progress off the grid and and looked properly ruthless. Very good. But Tarquini followed him through, made up a few spots and minimised the points loss. He only lost six of his 39-point uh, advantage at that point. But the, the fact that he'd put himself uh, in the middle of the pack really for the second and third races on account of qualifying 14th after hitting the barrier at Lisboa, Everyone who's been to Macau knows uh, how tricky that corner is, and Tarquini's probably done it enough times that it's inexcusable anymore. He um, he actually came out and and said it was completely his mistake, but he really put himself under under a lot more pressure than than he needed to with that. Um, and you know he it was his mistake at that corner in qualifying, but he was then the victim of. Uh, an incident there in the race that meant that Muller really had uh, had a pretty realistic shot at taking the title in the end in the in the final race
1: and that incident was entirely not of his making wasn't it it was triggered by the Oriola lacquer incident on the run to Lisboa.
4: there's a there's a there was a slight disagreement there i think between Oriola uh, and and Erlacher. um Oriola tried to squeeze up the inside on the run down to Lisboa, which is always it's tricky in an F3 car, but in a you know a wide old touring car, it's you're you're asking for trouble really. Uh, and Elisee didn't really see him as they're breaking into the corner. They've come together and, and uh, Elisee completely rotated as Oriola uh, was going straight on into the barrier. Managed to just get his foot back on the pedal up the inside where Oriola had then blocked the outside. Um, he was collected by Verney, Tarquini's teammate, Michelis, and Huff was at the back of that as well. You got a blockage from that, and uh, unfortunately, Tarquini was, was hit up the back, which put him into Ted Bjork, Ivan Muller's teammate, and uh, just completely ripped off the front end. So um, a big, big repair job for uh, Tarquini's uh, BRC racing team, which they managed to pull off, but again uh, it was a, p- a chance to score points that they missed out on
1: and clearly this set up that that final race decider in which tarkini didn't need to do vast amounts but he was he was vulnerable to to muller in this race and muller was having a reasonably reasonably competitive weekend towards the um, second and then third in the first two races so another similar result to that was it was always going to put tarkini under pressure and he is a driver who Historically, even though he's fifty six, he's he's still got an error in him, has not he? He's always had that uh, in, in his in his career, and it's still there.
4: Absolutely, um, and as as brilliant as he has been at times this season, and it's I, I don't think it's uh, insignificant to to highlight the fact he is fifty six. He his character he still seems like a twenty five year old, but um, to still be performing at the top level most of the time, as you say, is is quite an achievement. But there have been there have been a few troughs this season, and this was obviously one of them. It's just I think he's fortunate in the end that he'd managed to build up such a, a comfortable advantage, really, that he could fall back on in in that difficult time. But but then that's the that's the sort of thing you need to do to become a champion.
1: Uh, and he did seem to play the third race quite conservatively. He kind of hovered around the bottom end of the the top ten throughout. Is it one of those ones where we really had it in, in hand? Because Muller was only able to finish fourth, which is still a good result in a competitive field. But if Ivan had managed to get a few places further up, do you think Tarcini had the pace to respond to that? Or was that kind of the limit of what he could have done?
4: I think as, as the race grew on, he um, he realised that he could afford to sit back a bit. He he was ahead of uh, Björk in the race, and Björk caught him off guard and, and made a, a, a pretty uh, a pretty interesting pass into Payol um which I've heard Tarquini wasn't particularly happy about, but um he was then overtaken by Nathaniel Berton in one of the Audi cars as well towards the end. But I think one thing that's that's been a bit underplayed in the um the aftermath of the race is that uh BRC obviously fixed Tarquini's car. They they also fixed uh, Michelis's and um Michelis was ahead of Muller on the grid it was very clear what he was doing from an early stage he was he was happy to let people through ahead of him and keep muller at a at a safe distance behind so muller couldn't get within the top 3 that he needed to have any chance of uh, of winning the title so even after safety cars even after uh, you know stoppages it it became clear in the final few laps i think that that Tarquini could afford to sit back a bit and, and drop positions to I don't know, but perhaps soak up the um, the final few laps and and enjoy those before you know the euphoria of becoming a world champion.
1: And it is astonishing that we're talking about these two drivers, Tarquini in particular. I remember I covered the World Touring Car Championship in two thousand and seven and the first part of two thousand and eight. And you still had Tarquini as a top driver in that and he was he was a, a, a grizzled veteran then, but still going all these years down the line and still able to win at the top level because this is a a competitive championship so it's pretty astonishing that it's him and and old rival Ivan Muller of course who were touring car stars back in the 90s well I think if memory serves, Tarcini briefly cropped up in the 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 short-lived initial incarnation of the World Touring Car Championship in 1988 so it's astonishing longevity for for both of these
4: yeah and and don't forget as well Muller has retired and come back in that time Um,
1: seemingly quite grudgingly he returned didn't didn't he didn't he have to come back because the sponsor of his team wanted him in the car
4: that was, but I think he seems a completely different animal to to the one that I've encountered in in my short time covering the World Touring Car Championship as it was and, and now WTCR. He was obviously part of the ultra-successful Citroen squad in, in his final years in the WTCC, um, but was completely overshadowed by Jose Merida Lopez and called it a day after that he he came back for one race uh, in 2017 and then as you say it was perhaps a bit against his uh, initial wishes to come back for this campaign but he is he's been absolutely ruthless he is uh, he's the king of of getting in people's heads i think and uh, he, you know he's he's not afraid to come out and uh, publicly call people out swearing on the team radio it's that it's that kind of fight that was was missing really in those Citroen years so he's now confirmed to um to come back next year he's going to be joining up with uh with Scion Racing which are running a program with a new Chinese manufacturer Lincoln Co and I, I think it's inevitable that he will be at the front once again of of what's probably going to be an even more competitive field than than we've had this year.
1: And Tarkini's going to keep going.
4: Yeah, yeah. His uh, his thing of late has been one year deals, and and we believe that was the case for this year. But um, every indication is that he he will stay on. He he spoke in the press conference when uh, when he became champion about um, having thoughts when he won his first title nine years ago about calling it a day then, um, but he he's sort of. Wasn't entertaining any suggestion that, that that might be the case this time round. And, and put his age to one side, he is still performing at the top level. Hyundai's customer racing boss, Andrea uh, Adamo, is, is perfectly happy with him there. So, yeah, I see no reason why he won't be back to defend his crown next year.
1: And although we focused on the on the championship, we should of course mention that those who won the races, uh, three races, Jean-Carl Frederick Frederic and Esteban Guerrieri got the the three victories. And of course, Rob Huff didn't manage to add to his vast number of uh, of Macau victories. So, just uh, looking at the actual performances over the weekend, was there was there one standout driver?
4: It probably is actually Huff, Ed, um, and that sounds strange because he he yeah, as you say, didn't manage to win either of the races, but he was just sublime on uh, on his qualifying laps on his on his pole position shootout in the second qualifying session he was half a second clear of the rest you know we've we've come we've become used to seeing him win practically every time he goes to Macau so it was strange this year for him not to but i i often wondered over the course of the week whether or certainly at the start of the week anyway whether it was sort of just a a psychological thing where he has now won so many times that the other drivers almost think, well, you know, it's going to be that that difficult to beat him. But then going trackside, watching him a couple of times, you can just you can see the sort of formulaic lines that quite a few people are taking in. And he was able to, through the Solitude S's, take a completely different entry to uh, some of the others, wider line in. Um, it just seemed a lot more at ease than than anyone else so yes he didn't have the headline success of, of the others but really impressive performance from, from Huff this weekend in in what I think statistically looks like one of his worst years of recent times but actually has been a, a very competent showing from him um, in a Volkswagen that's not up to the standards certainly of the pace setting Hyundai but probably the, the Honda and, and the Audi as well this year
1: and it says a great deal about the depth of the championship. He's down in eighth place, even with perhaps a car disadvantage. But it shows how, how competitive it is, of course, Huff, uh, a former World Touring Car Champion in his own right. So, yeah, third and a second place were his, uh, his headline results in Macau. Now, we should also talk about the GC World Cup race. Macau is now a, very much a three-pronged event past few years this has uh, this gt event has uh, has been added augusto farfus won for bmw it seemed like a relatively straightforward victory but i, I guess the big story is that it was uh, an emotional farewell victory for one of the great team bosses charlie lamb who now heads into retirement after many many years at the helm of schnitzer
4: yeah and it's i think it's really it's obviously fitting um that that we're able to tell that story uh, schnitzer had won the guia race uh, the touring car race 13 times in in its history which is remarkable statistic and obviously it's been a a few years since the team has has, uh contested that now so for charlie lamb to have a a send-off where the car was perhaps not not quite as fast as mercedes but where farfus was able to you know use uh, (laughs) the. all the racing now so we come to expect from him over recent years and get ahead at the start of the qualification race and then absolutely control things from there, not only in, in the qualification race, but in, in the main event itself. He, um, he didn't look faster than any of the Mercedes that were pursuing him in the, uh, in the main event. But, um, you know, was just able to gap them on, on the, uh, through the kinks and on the run down to Lisboa and didn't really look like he was under any pressure at any point was just able to control it so not much action in the race but a a brilliant brilliant way for uh charlie lamb to to sign off
1: yeah uh, not just a great Team leader Charlie Lamb, but also a great motor racing enthusiast, a really, a really nice guy, and and somebody who I think everybody uh, enjoys seeing do well because he's he's not only very well respected, but he's he's very very well liked. I guess the the key thing for Farfus was because Rafaeli Marciello was was the kind of guy initially challenging him. He got ahead of him in uh, well Farfus got ahead of him in the qualifying race, and then he was chased by Marcello in the for some of the the final, and then in the end he came unstuck and and Marangle threw through to second I mean if Marcello had kept going could he have well kept going in in second could he have given Farfus more to think about or do you think he had it covered
4: I I think if you look at how the Mercedes uh, of Engel closed in after Marcello had gone off I I think Farfus would have had it covered the BMW seemed a a bit stronger in a straight line which is you can overtake in Macau but it's so important to have that speed on the on the run down to Lisboa um, Marcello was really impressive that his pole lap just absolutely came out of nowhere so it perhaps then wasn't a, a surprise when uh, Farfus got back ahead of him in the qualification race but um, he it, it was certainly unfortunate, he ended up going off at, at Lisboa into the barrier um, got going again, it wasn't a, a big impact but finished down in ninth. but um, it, a, a final position that Really didn't do justice to to his performance as well because he was he in a in a three car setup next to um, you know previous winners of this race he was uh, the the lead Mercedes driver really
1: well a big victory for Farfus of course if memory serves he has won there in touring cars before uh, but he's another driver who uh, tends to go pretty pretty well at Macau. Uh, well, thanks very much, Jack Cousins, for your time. I'll leave you to get on with your Sunday evening, as I know you have an enormous amount of uh, work to get through in the uh, in the hotel there in Macau, so I, sh- I shall leave you to get on
4: with it. Thanks, Ed. Thank you.
1: Well, let's leave Macau behind and head down under now, specifically to New South Wales for the World Rally Championship finale. I'm joined by David Evans, who must be at some terribly uncivilised hour, to talk through Sebastian Ogier's sixth World Rally crown. That's a huge amount of excitement heading into the title deciding Rally Australia. So did it live up to expectations, David?
2: It definitely did, Ed. There's there's no doubt it was a it was an absolute classic Rally Australia. Uh we had three drivers, Sebastian Augier, Thierry Neville, and Oik Tanak going into this event with a with a shot at winning the championship. Uh and you could, I mean fair enough, you couldn't say right up until the end we didn't know who was going to win. Uh the fact that Augier was three points in the lead going into the event meant he was he was kind of on the front foot but at the same time by the fact that he was leading the championship it meant that he was actually on the back foot on day one because he was the guy that had to sweep the roads clear running first on the road he had to sweep all of the loose gravel aside and prepare a faster line for all the guys following him so it was a tough job um and how did he do it he did it by making less mistakes than anybody else quite simply this was a supreme performance, a superb lesson in how to drive a world rally car by Sébastien Auger. When the pressure really came to the guy, he truly delivered uh, on, on every level. The the mistake for Thierry Neville, was it a mistake? I don't know. He had a puncture or he knocked a, an awkward landing uh, on Friday afternoon and it knocked a tyre off a rim uh, on, on his Hyundai. Uh, and he then overshot, couldn't get the car slowed down in time, and he overshot and... and crashed into a, a chicane. He dropped about a minute. Uh crucially that put him behind uh Sebastian Auger in the classification, which then well <laughs> very complicated this Ed, but obviously for the for days two and three on our World Championship round, we turn the classification round. So the the slowest guy goes first on the road. That slowest guy then was Thierry Neville. So he really struggled on, on Saturday cleaning the road, doing the job that um That Sebastian had been doing through Friday and in all honesty that was his championship chance gone really it was very very difficult to see Nivelle coming back um from that position of of being at the front of the of the field on Saturday at the front of the pack on Saturday uh and then Sunday it was the weather that changed everything um the the rain really came down over Saturday night and I've never seen the, the roads here in, in New South Wales quite as slippery as they were. Um, just, you know, watching the onboards and stuff. It was real heart in the mouth stuff. Credit to Thierry Nivelle. He absolutely gave it everything. He, uh, he pushed his, his I-20 as, as hard as it could go. And he risked everything. You know, he kept saying every time we saw him, you know, I've got nothing to lose. I've got to give it everything. Uh, and the accident, which you'd seen coming for a couple of stages finally came with, with two stages left to run um he came over a crest, and he couldn't get the thing slowed down. He hit a bank and and ripped a wheel off uh and that was that and after watching novelvell for so long through this year, it was really quite emotional to see the guy you know his championship chance he'd led the championship for eight rounds through the middle of the year but it it was all over um at the side of the road uh with two stages left to run it it was done for him um as I say, at that point, Augier was ahead anyway. So, you know, it was, it was still an outside shot for, for Thierry. But the guy who was right at the front and the only other potential, uh, champion this year was Oit Tanak. Um, his job was far harder. You know, he was really the outsider and all he could do was try to win the event. Um, and he was running second to Yeri Mati Probably Toyota would have turned that around, um, and, and put Tanak in front but ultimately it was never really going to be enough to beat Ogier um and in the end Tanak uh crashed out on the on the penultimate stage as well uh he he went off the road and then damaged the gearbox trying to get back on and had no drive so that was the end of that so after this sensational build up you know for 23 of 24 stages in Australia we were kept not quite on hooks, but we didn't know what was going to happen um and then going into the power stage one one stage remaining the the m sport ford world rally team got on the radio and told sebastian ogier he was he was this year's world rally champion after all the hype after all the build up after all the excitement it was ultimately quite an underwhelming way for for ogier to learn about his uh, his sixth successive world rally championship how tough was this one even harder than the first with m sport last season this year's championship by have no doubt this was the toughest championship that Ogier has ever driven you know he said as much himself I from memory he's ne- no he's never gone down to the wire in a championship he's always won it uh with rounds to spare so the very fact that he, that he you know his rivals took him to the final round this time uh, makes it the most the, the most difficult for him and and you know Thierry was just three points behind him uh so it was it was a, a, a real tricky one and the conditions made this a really difficult rally as well. You know, running first on the road was was tricky for for Sebastian on day one, but then the rain just made it hellish for absolutely everybody on on the final day on Sunday. It was, yeah, it was a tough event, uh, and it was a a tough climax to to what's been a very very difficult year for for Ogier this year. Not a difficult year, a difficult championship. Uh, you know, there's been highs and lows. We've seen Ogier make probably more mistakes than, uh, than ever this year. Um, in plays, you know, Portugal spring to mind. And then of course Turkey and just silly things that, that you wouldn't normally associate with him. Uh, he's, he's made mistakes and he's made it harder for himself.
1: Well, as we've discussed, Ogier knows all too well how to win world championships. Did that experience give him the edge over Neville and Tanak, given they were both gunning for their first, do you think?
2: Definitely. The fact that, you know, Sebastian Ogier had won five championships already. Uh he it gave him it relaxed him more than anything. You know, in the press conference before the event, he said um that the pressure is on is on Oit and, and Thierry because they're chasing the first one. Um and and in his own words, you know, winning a sixth championship is nice. I'll push like hell to do it, but it's not going to change my life. Uh, and, of course, it's not. And, you know, I remember 12 months ago and 24 months ago sitting in Australia, hearing Augier say exactly the same thing. And, you know, that championship, once you've won one, two, three, you know, four, five, six, do they really matter quite as much? I'm, of course they do. And you look back in history that they are great to have those championships, but nothing... Uh, you know who who am i to say i've never won a world rally championship but i can imagine that nothing really comes quite as close as that first one uh and you will do everything you can to get that first one because you never know if you'll get a second or third opportunity and for sure thierry and oit were were desperate to win this year's world championship and I, i think what we saw uh, in Australia this weekend was genuine real experience from from Ogier. he he didn't get rattled he he was wound up on Friday he was really angry about the regulations that made him run first on the road Uh, you know the FIA was, was not a, a popular governing body for, for for running these regulations but he dealt with it he just got on with it he drove his own rally uh he kept his nose clean he didn't make any mistakes Uh and that's it's it's that ability to to drive a clean rally like that that uh, that comes with experience, being in that championship fight or being on the verge of, of doing something great and dealing with it. Uh, and that's for sure, that really helped him this weekend. And we should add that this
1: wasn't just about the Drivers' Championship, but the manufacturers as well. A very big win for Toyota in what's only its second season back in the WRC.
2: Yeah, of course, that's right, Ed. We saw Toyota taking their first um, manufacturers championship since 1999. Uh, and a real, a genuinely a, an incredible feat from Tommy Mackinan's, uh, team based out of Finland there. Only their second year with this guy. I was talking to Tommy afterwards and he said three and a half years ago, this car, this project, none of this existed. Um, and when you consider that, um, Hyundai has been doing the, the championship for four or five years now. And they still haven't won, either a driver's or a manufacturer's. And for Toyota to come in and, and do it in their second year is very, very impressive. OK, you know, you could look back and say, well, Volkswagen came and, and did it in their first year uh, with, the, with the Polo back in 2013. But the World Rally Championship is a different place now. You know, I would say it's more competitive than, than it's really ever been before. Uh, the cars are so incredibly closely matched, and we've got four cars that are absolutely gunning for victory. Each of those manufacturers has won at least once this year, so it's close. Uh, and Toyota has, has won it, and the thing that's won it for, for the, for the Yaris is the speed it's found over the second half of the year. You know, they spent, still in the first half of this year they were evolving the car they were working on the dampers they were working on the engine uh and it all really came good uh in the second half and you've got to say you know the speed that um that tanak showed through that second half of the year was absolutely superb it was to win those three rallies on the trot was was incredible uh and he could have won more had he not had a, a puncture or some radiator damage in in spain and wales uh, so, you know, who's to say that actually, you know, Auger wasn't robbed and he could have, Toyota could have had the the double, the manufacturers and the drivers' championship. But, of course, it was
1: Yari Matty-Latvilla, a former Autosport podcast guest, no less, who won in Australia. It was his only win of a very difficult season, so that must have made it a very important one for him.
2: Yeah, that's right. And and it's always great to see another Yari Matty win. Uh, you know, he's, he's everybody's favourite. He's a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve and, this sport means absolutely everything to Jari Matti, and it would have really hurt him this year not to win. Since he won his first event in in Sweden and became the WRC's youngest ever winner in, in Sweden in 2008, he has won at least one round of the championship every year since then, uh, and of course he hasn't won since Sweden last year, so it would have been difficult for yarimati not to have won this year he said he'd reconciled it in his own head that if he could win the the manufacturer's championship with toyota he would count that in his own mind as a as a victory for this year but to see him do it in in australia was brilliant and he won it in such a tremendous way as well he really was he was on superb form um and i have to say you know it we talked. We've talked earlier about about Ogier's experience in in overcoming some really tricky conditions. Laville did the same. You know, he showed his experience. He's the most experienced driver in this championship. He's seen all of these conditions before. You know, he was he was here in 2011 as was Ogier when we had a really wet rally in in this part of the world. Yari Mati did make a mistake. He did. He. Clipped a chicane, he whacked a chicane um, really hard, which actually um, brought on a whole load of, of other problems for for Andreas Mikkelsen. Uh, if we've got time, I'll briefly explain this because it's quite a, a, a really quite a frightening story, actually. So Latvala had hit the chicane uh, and he'd moved the chicane, big straw bell chicanes, into the middle of the road. There was a, a group of marshals who were based near near the the chicane. Um, and without consulting rally control, they took it upon themselves to use the three minute gap between the cars to drive a tractor into the stage to move the chicane back into position for the next car coming along, which was Andreas Mickelson. Now, I think we'd, we'd perhaps applaud their initiative in, in undertaking that job, but to send a tractor, to send anything onto a live stage is just, insane you know there is no excuse for it it's it's absolutely shocking uh and so when mickelson came around the corner and he actually saw this tractor in the chicane uh the tractor had gone through the chicane when by the time mickelson got there andreas overtook him um and was having a conversation with his with his co-driver saying you know what do i do do we stop here do we slow down do we what didn't know what to do um and you know this is at flat out rally speed uh, and it's really not much of a surprise that, um, that Mickelson crashed on the next, uh, fast left-hand corner. He missed his breaking point as, as in his own words, his mind and his head was everywhere. Um, and he went off and he rolled, uh, and ended a pretty miserable year for himself there. So I'm not saying this is all Yari Matthews fault. Of course it's not. Um, but you know, we need the FA, we need rally, or- rally Australia organisers to look into this. How this happened that we could have a tractor driving down the stage is 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 beyond me. Um, I I don't understand this at all. Certainly, we cannot see that again. Um, and that was, I mean, it was quite a a low point for the event for for what was otherwise an, an absolutely brilliant brilliant rally and a very fitting end to uh, to a superb year of rallying.
1: Well, this is also a very fitting end to a lively podcast. So thanks very much, David Evans, for your insight. I really do think now you should try and get some sleep, given it's well after midnight for you down there. Well, if you'd like to read more about the World Rally Championship finale from David Evans, or also some of our coverage of Macau, head to autosport.com. Check out our Plus subscriber area, where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists. Also check out sister titles, F1 Racing Magazine, Out Monthly and motorsport.com and if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family